Hi everyone, this is Eugene, and what you just listened to was a recording of Halloween protests in Hong Kong, given to us by Yiling Lu, today's guest. And I hope that it brought you into the scene which Yiling writes about so well in her article for Harper's Magazine called Dream State. She writes about how in Hong Kong, protesting is called dreaming in Chinese. And at the time of recording this, I personally wonder if we're getting closer to the end of this dream with the passage of a national security legislation in Beijing that'll allow the government to basically expand its ability to crack down on protests. But rather than giving you my thoughts and my usual takeaways from this episode, I'm just going to read to you an excerpt from Yiling's article, which you can find a link to in our description. Recently, this is what living in Hong Kong has felt like. Dreaming. There's something surreal about how the city swings from one state to another. On weekdays, life goes on as usual. You take the train to work, get on the bus to school, eat dinner with your family. On weekends, the world flips, time warps, and roles shift. The accountant leaves her office to hand out masks and saline. The student puts aside his homework to throw Molotov cocktails on the front lines. The mall becomes a cathedral filled with hymns. Train stations become hellscapes of mangled metal and flames. You take to the streets with hundreds of thousands of others, not knowing exactly who they are, where they come from, or whether you even agree, but with the understanding that you are all here for the same reason, to dream up a new future. podcast and today I'm super excited to actually have a friend and someone I admire uh, really deeply on the podcast, uh, Yiling Lu, a nonfiction writer covering technology, culture, and society in China. Uh, Yiling, thanks so much for joining us virtually. Thanks for having me, Paul. <laughs> um, so I uh, have been following your work um, and you know, articles in different outlets, but something that really struck me was your recent article in Harper's Magazine, which everyone should check out, uh, called Dream State. Uh, it's, a, it's a really personal piece um, that you, know, you can definitely speak on better than I can, um, but uh, you know, centered around your personal experience in Hong Kong uh, about identity, uh, generational divides, and protests. Um, so I was wondering if you could start off you know, for listeners who might be unfamiliar with Hong Kong and, and the situation there about uh, just giving a brief overview of, um, you know, Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong society and some of the, the fault lines that you've seen manifested in the protests, especially this past year. Yeah. So just a quick briefer for those who don't understand Hong Kong that well. Hong Kong is a city that's part of China. It's a special administrative region, which means uh Basically, in 1997, it used to be a British colony, but then was handed over back to uh, the mainland um, and would be under Chinese governments. But it would be governed under a very unique system called one country, two systems, which meant that even though as part of China, it would have its own judicial system and it would have all these civil liberties like freedom of speech and the ability to select parts of the government in certain forms of leadership, um, but not all. And there is this kind of vague outline and sketch and an understanding that in the next 50 years between 1997 and 2047, uh, Hong Kong would slowly transition into a full democracy, uh, what we call universal suffrage, where the Hong Kong people can directly elect the chief executive and so there was a large peaceful protest in 2014 called the Umbrella Movement, which was to fight for universal suffrage. Effectively, Beijing had broken on an earlier promise to move in that direction. There was some contention of what exactly that direction meant. And uh, there are huge protests that were considered kind of a failure because they didn't quite achieve uh, the goals that the protests intended, but it did, and we can talk about this later, uh, amount to a deeper kind of social awakening across the city. And yeah, lo and behold, come 2019, that kind of simmering tension is still very much there. And uh, in June last year, 
the what kind of catalyzed and sparked the protests was Carrie Lam, the chief executive, basically said, uh, introduced like a, a very unpopular new law uh, called the extradition bill and basically would give Hong Kong the ability to extradite criminals back to the mainland. And so a lot of people saw that as a potential encouragement on freedoms and just saw huge, like large numbers, I think, up to 2 million protesters in June just came out and took to the streets uh, mm-hmm. and those are peaceful. But then over the course of the last half year, those have evolved and morphed uh, in pretty intense and a lot of times violent ways, um, but fundamentally driven by five demands, which are the withdrawal of the bill, which they've been withdrawn, um, but then four more, which includes stuff like uh, a commission, uh, independent inquiry into police brutality, and the most important one, obviously, uh, universal suffrage. And yeah, so that's kind of the the very complicated waters that we're delving into with with the protests. Yeah. I mean, thanks so much for that overview. And and you've actually been on the ground and able to experience, you know, what it's like at some of these protests, right? Yeah. And I'm I'm really curious to hear more about that because I feel like, um, at least for me, looking out from the outside, there's so much that I I, I want to know, and um, I feel like especially last summer there was just this flurry of information um, about Hong Kong, mm-hmm. much uh, before the coronavirus. But I, I'm just curious about the drivers, you know, of these frustrations and grievances because, you know, just as a side note, I'm I'm just curious. Compared to the umbrella movement in 2014 and and, and this round of protests uh, mainly aimed at the extradition bill, is the demographics and the age breakup, the socioeconomic breakup um, that that make up the protesters, has that changed at all uh, between 2014 and now? Yeah. So I asked two things. The first, to, to respond to that, your most immediate question, I'd say, the big difference between the 2014 and 2017 protests, or sorry, 2019 and 2014 protests, is these are totally leaderless. Um, and so they kind of operate under very decentralized leadership. There's no one that you can point to in the same way that you did in 2014 and say, like, this person is, you know, the figurehead. In 2014, mm-hmm. you had Joshua Wong, um, but you also had the, you know, Occupy Trio who were, you know, in their 50s and 60s, and they were very, like, well-respected, um, you know, professors mm-hmm. and reverends in the in the community. Whereas uh, the 2019 protests have been driven almost entirely, I would say a, a lot of it was, has been driven by university students and perhaps even younger, like, I think compared to... 2014, a lot of high school students participating as young as middle school. Like I've, I've seen, you know, 13-year-old, 15-year-olds out yeah. on the streets. The youngest arrested protester, I think, was was 12 or 11. And so, like, that would, I would say, are the big differences. And, you know, your earlier question, like, or earlier point is just that there is a huge difference between what, you know, what you read in the news and what you experience on ground because i i wasn't in hong kong when the protests broke out i wasn't in hong kong between june and october and i only really returned in october and i learned more just by walking through one day of protests one Mm -hmm. sunday than i did from like weeks and weeks of reading and just like consuming twitter um and i think one of the main things that totally surprised me as somebody who had been born and raised and lived all my life in Hong Kong is these very intricate divisions that snake throughout uh, Hong Kong society um, in surprising ways. Like I didn't even realize the extent to which there was, I don't know if you know, but like in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, the the divisions are along the lines of blue and yellow. Mm -hmm. Um, and so yellow means basically pro-protester, pro-democracy, and blue means um, pro-establishment. But within those two kind of camps, there are a lot of different reasons. And we can go into those why one would go, one would be blue and one would identify as yellow. Hmm. And yeah, I- I'm glad 
we're bringing this back to the the goal and the mission of this podcast, which is to connect different stories of uh, family separation and really explore the idea of divided family. Because I think at least what I've seen um, in you know different interviews that I've had, issues that uh, we've tried to cover, um, you know, from from wars and and conflicts, uh, is more physical separation of families, right? Like through, uh, you know, refugees or asylum seekers or, you know, Japanese American internment camps or, you know, uh, people fleeing from the Korean War. But it it seems like, I I don't know, I'm just, could you help highlight kind of a a story or two um, that, that can help us understand kind of what family separation is like in Hong Kong and, and kind of what, what, what makes that unique there? For sure. So just to kind of get into, just like define the, the most marked division, it's between the one thing that we talked about a little is just that these divisions cut across all other ties, really like socioeconomic, racial, geographical. And I mean, certainly there are, there are a lot of people who are slightly older who are supportive of movements and a lot of people who are younger who I mean less so but some people who are younger who might be not supportive of the movement um but definitely there is this kind of generational gap that I noticed um a lot of the times conflicts were very intimate um so between a father and son or mother and daughter or Mm. grandchild or grandfather and it really kind of boils down to the fact that a lot of people who I, okay, so why would someone identify as blue or pro-establishment? Pro-establishment person could be someone who is pro-business and sees the protests as, you know, like wreaking havoc on the economy of the city um, and kind of uh, want to preserve that stability. A a pro-establishment person could be a rural indigenous villager out in, you know, Lama Island, uh, you know, who uh, has, um, because of certain, you know, more archaic laws, has certain claims over the land that they don't want shook up by the introduction of pro-democracy protests. Uh, It could be somebody who is pro-Beijing, so has close ties to uh, central government in China and so doesn't want to ruin that relationship. Mm -hmm. And... On the other hand, pro-democracy just means anyone who's kind of disillusioned with the status quo and wants to see some kind of change, right? So that can mean a lawyer who is working within the system and just wants, uh, you know, reforms within the existing political uh, system. Or it could be somebody who is more radical and believes that violence is the necessary way and Hong Kong and Hong Kong independence. But the reason why I think a lot of times, often, generations are divided is because of this tension between wanting to preserve the status quo and keep things the way they are and realizing that some type of fundamental change needs to take place and the current way of things, that things are going cannot continue. So, you know, like one song, I mean, this is this is what I find quite universal is like one song that actually couches on to this very well as i don't know if you've ever you do you know cat stevens no i don't i'm sorry i'm so uncultured <laughs> no, 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 no. he's like an, he's like he's an old dude he's not he's like he's not that he's like not of our time um but he did a lot of like anti-war like he was kind of like a in in the in the time of bob dylan and I see. he has he has a song called father and son and the father has like this low like like alto bit and the son has this like like higher like octave part and father's kind of just saying like just relax take it easy you know like don't shake the boat and the son is like if we don't rock the boat the world's gonna go like hit the fan you know and so I think there is a bit of that dynamic there with a lot of families that I've seen you probably want a specific example. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. And Yeah, so like one example is this one young man that I talked to for the story, Lorenzo, and he, you know, like he and his father, he, he, he just like 
had a lot of animosity towards his father. You know, I asked him if he loved his father and he was like, I don't know. And his father falls under the bracket of somebody who is, he describes as blue, though his mother is yellow, he says. Um, and his father is blue because he is a indigenous. So he has, he's allowed certain things on, on the land because he is native of that area. Um, but then Lorenzo very kind of brutally almost says of his father that he is an uneducated truck driver who is like a Trump supporter. And I was just, I was pretty shocked by that condemnation of his father, but he basically says he thinks that his father doesn't care about things like democracy and rule of law and just wants to preserve the status quo, whereas he sees those things as necessary and actually worth, you know, shaking the boat over. And then there are a lot of cases of, you know, people like children of police. I think a lot of young people are involved in the protests and, you know, if you are a protester and your father is a police officer, like that is just a very bizarre dynamic to be in because there's such a kind of deep-seated hostility between the protesters and police officers. And so, you know, to go out into a city and be on, you know, opposite ends of the front lines and then to go home and like share a kitchen and a living room space with that person is, is so jarring and there's only so much space in Hong Kong, you know? And so I think it's heightened by the fact that we live in such a small city. Yeah. That story of Lorenzo and that you, you know, talk about in in the piece in, in Harper's, I think really resonated with me because um, I, I read this statistic. I, I don't know how accurate it is, but it said that I think more than 75% of uh, millennials or you know younger people, people in their 20, 18 to 35 in Hong Kong uh, still live with their parents uh, because one, I guess space is, is so limited, but two, because it's, it's hard to be financially dependent and find a place for yourself, um, much, much less a job. So I just can't imagine, I think just speaking from my personal experience, there's so much generational uh, barriers, well, I, I guess we can put it that way, or divisions in my own family um, that were really you know, palpable for me growing up. But then I think, uh, not that they went away, but they were just less, I, I didn't have to deal with them as directly as I grew up, you know, when I went to college um, or, or now because I don't live with them anymore. But I just can't imagine what it's like to, you know, go to a protest on the weekend and then go back and, you know, try, try to deal with this uh, with my with my family. Um, or I, I guess, I, I don't know. I don't know how open... Um, like if if protesters hide the fact that or or if they're even able to hide the fact that they're you know going to these protests and i'm I'm sure their their parents know but yeah that that was just just a just a personal reflection that I had um hearing that story, yeah, no, it's so wild it's i mean I think I have rarely met anyone i I don't think I've met anyone who has not been affected or has has had some relationship be affected in some way, you know, even just on a very mild level, I think people like are just touchier about, you know, talking to friends and people on the streets because they just don't know where they stand. And so, you know, like little cues can just let off where your stance is, right? Like the MTR was shut down for a bit. And so like, if you were like, oh, you know, the MTR is shut down. It's so annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, like these protests are making things so inconvenient. You know, like it's just like a little cue, like, okay, this person is like a low key blue. Whereas yeah. if you were like, can't, you know, it's just like there's these little cues that kind of people start watching for in ways that would just never was a part of my growing up, you know, up until 2019. And then like, and on the more extreme side, it's like a lot, a lot of stories of like kids getting kicked out of their homes, not going home, um, divorces, like, you know, like cop husband, protester wife. Like, I think there was one very touching story that I heard about 
ASU HK student who, you know, was like out on the front lines and his father is relatively pro-establishment and, you know, he would just go home and they wouldn't talk about it, but he would see his son just all kind of beaten up and just give him a back rub, you know, and it's just like a wordless back rub. It's like, okay, like we are going to disagree and we are so not on the same page, but like, I love you. Here's a back rub, you know, like it's just, Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of the times when I was writing this, I felt like what I was seeing was a very intractable kind of conflict. And sometimes you just try to look for those moments of, of tenderness. Yeah. The, I guess it's one thing to not talk to your, your father or your son, um, at the dinner table, but I guess it's another thing to actually, you know, disown them or, 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 you know, excommunicate them from your family and, and your home. And it's, it's pretty shocking to me that that's, that's happened so many times. And I want, did you get to, do you know what, um, this guy, uh, Lorenzo, his family situation was like, I mean, clearly he was estranged from, uh, his father, but do you know if, you know, he's still living with, uh, his family or is he just on his own and financially independent? As far as I'm aware, he's still living with his family. And so, yeah, those bonds go very deep. Like, I think as much as people are willing to renounce their families, there's a kind of deep-seated love and, like, filial, like, pity, right? Like, it's like the, the confusion thing runs deep in families and on the side of the world. And people have just tried to hold those two things yeah, separately at, at all at once, you know? Yeah, and you're right that small spaces really just make things all the more intense. Like there's no running away from that conflict. There's only mediating it. Yeah, I, I, I think I would be curious to hear from Lorenzo's father or mother's side of the story, because uh, you know, not that I, I mean, I, I totally sympathize with uh, with Lorenzo, and I think. You know, as as the same generation, um, I and and having friends in Hong Kong who, you know, have been part of the protests, I, I definitely I see where they're coming from, and not to negate their experiences and feelings at all, but I think what's uh, been the focus of a lot of uh, you know media coverage is um, is really you know the grievances of the young people, and and kind of that's been like lionized in the way. But I, I don't know. I, I just want to hear um, both, if not multiple sides of the story. So I, I don't know. Did you ever get a sense? Did you get a chance to talk to older people and kind of, you know, why they're pushing back so hard and, and, you know, maybe totally yeah not willing to compromise? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think one small caveat I want to make is like I'm also wary of presenting the conflict too much of a generational divide because I just there are so many I would say like slightly older protesters who are like very staunch supporters of the movement um yeah I saw these like silver hair protests that were really inspiring totally yeah yeah so many and just like I think it it would be kind of unfair of me to say that you know all old people were not supportive um Mm-hmm. Like even the most recent arrests, like there are a bunch, there are a huge amount of arrests of pro-democracy lawyers, and yeah. they, you know, they're all in their like eighties and seventies and like super revered in the community. But I think to try to, one thing I was conscious of was I definitely felt like I didn't have or didn't present explicitly the blue kind of pro-establishment perspective um, in my piece, and. I think one very common kind of thought among people who are anti-protester or kind of like pro-stability, pro-establishment is that Hong Kong is a very young city. It's like a very new society and it's comprised mostly of immigrants and refugees and immigrants and refugees from the mainland. Mm-hmm. And they didn't come because, like, they were having a great time during the Cultural Revolution. You know, yeah. like, 
they were like they were like fleeing one of the largest famines in the world the most insane revolution where so many people you know where they were just like paraded around the city wearing dunce caps um and now mm. like sent thousands of people to the countryside and so this was like upheaval beyond anything we have ever experienced and so many parents and grandparents of young people in Hong Kong like that's what they were fleeing and yeah. so the mentality that they are coming into Hong Kong with is like look I'm going to just keep my head down stay out of politics work hard make money and live a good life for me and my family so now like suddenly that calm over the last few years has been totally upended they're freaked out they're like this is exactly the type of thing we sought to escape and we wanted to you know like live a long and good and peaceful life and why you know like and, and I think some of the more extreme elements though I, I hesitate to make this comparison mm -hmm. uh, can be reminiscent of you know the Red Guards and so like mm -hmm. It's like, why stir up this ruckus when we have it pretty good? I think that is what a lot of blue people, both older and younger, feel. And now, like, the counter of that is if you were never, you know, if you were not born into the Cultural Revolution, if you were not born into that upheaval, you're upheaval, you were born into a, a peaceful, orderly, stable Hong Kong. And the way you see it is, like, suddenly these freedoms that you have had all your life are slowly being eroded and slowly being taken away. And there's no way you're just going to sit around and do nothing as those are being taken away, right? And so it's kind of, you have to fight back. And I think that's the mentality that a lot of yellows and mostly younger protesters have. So you can see, I guess, how from a deeply personal individual perspective both are understandable yeah i it's interesting you put it like you know it's like this dream state that a lot of hong kongers are, are living in but i think what, what strikes me is that there's like a very concrete uh timeline or, or deadline uh where people have to wake up from this dream you know whether it's it's a good dream or a nightmare Right, the basic law agreement and, and and the full transition to I guess Chinese rule or, or Chinese control or PRC control is twenty forty seven. So I mean, there there is you can, you can't ignore uh, I guess whatever side you're on, you can't ignore that fact um, or that kind of looming. I, I feel like that would always be in the back of my mind. Um, that, you know, when I am my parents' age, you know, I'm going to have to deal with a radically different Hong Kong. Yeah. But I, I yeah, I, I want to go back to uh, that song, actually, which, I, which I'm definitely going to listen to, the, the father and son, uh, Cat Stevens song, because, you know, taking a step back, because I think so far we focus mostly on the family units and individuals in Hong Kong, but I guess zooming out a bit to... I guess the relationship between you know Beijing and Hong Kong or mainland China and Hong Kong. You know, I, I've actually heard some people um, compare that relationship to like like a parent and child, and mm -hmm. actually m more so in the context of cross-strait relations in you know Taiwan and, and mainland China, but Hong Kong as well. I don't know if it was the BBC or there was some um, documentary or the ceremony that about about the 1997 handover. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned it's it's described as this, like, is it, did you say uh, restoration or, or liberation? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Or, or like the light coming back, light being restored. But yeah, I, I'm just I'm just curious if you've heard uh, people in Hong Kong talk about and, and comment on this parent-child metaphor and almost like, you know, 1997, it was like this lost child after so many years of being in, you know, foreign control, British control, coming back to uh, Chinese control. Yeah, no, totally. The, there are so many different metaphors, just like it's an incredible number of metaphors that people have tried to use to make sense of this like very bizarre dynamic. And they just always end up being familial. 
and the best, definitely the most uh, used metaphor to describe kind of Hong Kong's relationship with the mainland is a parent-child one. Um, so like beyond what's going on inside, like the kind of broad metaphor is always like, like Papa China and like the kid Hong Kong or yeah. like, you know, the motherland, right? I think people in Hong Kong definitely are kind of allergic to that metaphor because it's like a bit condescending, right? Um, yeah. But then it, it certainly it certainly makes sense, right? You have a young city comprised mostly of immigrants of this like ancient nation. So it certainly holds and it, it definitely makes sense um, in terms of explaining mainland attitudes towards the protest and why it's so personal like it's so visceral and it seems like such a personal attack to mainland individuals that the hong kongers are protesting right and that mm -hmm. the international is so supportive of the protests because if we were to continue that analogy um you know hong kong is the the young child the mainland is the kind of original mother parent and you know the uk in this case would be you know a, an adoptive father right yeah. and so when there are pockets of protesters waving the union jack you know or calling for a return to british rule um or calling for you know marco rubio to come in and condemn china there is the this kind of feeling of oh, you want your adoptive daddy back? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It's, and, or like, or you're like calling on the white father, like the, the white man to come and take the child away from his rightful parent, right? So there's definitely that type of um, familial undertone and metaphor running through that. And hereditary like dynamics and like a father and belong a son belonging to a father and like a sense of xiao right like uh yeah it's just such piety, a, like, filial piety is like a huge part of like chinese culture have you seen that people on on both sides or on multiple sides whether you you know agree with it or disagree with that metaphor do you think people uh accept that father and son analogy if you know what I mean, I, you know, I guess like, I guess you can say, you know, you can, you can still accept the fact that, or this idea that Beijing or, or mainland China is the, this, this like father figure, but you can still say, no, I don't need to be part of this family anymore. You know, I can be, I can be independent or I can, I can do what I want to do. Totally. Totally. I would say like a lot of people would totally disagree with that analogy particularly younger protesters, because it's like, I mean, a lot of young people in Hong Kong think like, I have nothing to do with China. Like I've never been to China. I was not born in China. Like they do not consider themselves Chinese, right? I think this kind of ties into your second question. Like in 2008, a, a lot of Hong Kongers considered themselves Chinese. And I think at that mm -hmm. time, it was just because like a lot of the reason was like the global attitude towards China was a lot more positive and yeah. the government was not as repressive on you know Hong Kong society as it is now and so you know for Lorenzo he, he was proud to be Chinese which is crazy given how things have changed in the last decade you know less than a decade he's proud yeah. to be Chinese and considered I think most people considered being a Hong Konger and being Chinese is complimentary and now there's this feeling like well I, I don't I literally don't have anything to do with Chinese culture. Like you, you're claiming to be my father, but you were never my father, you know? Um, and now a lot of people see those as not just not complimentary. They're, they're literally like contradictory to be one means that you cannot be the other. And that's, that's a huge amount of tension for people who might want to identify as both. And that's probably another generational thing, right? It's like, if you spent most of your childhood growing up in the mainland, like no matter how much you reject what you left, you still have deep rooted, deep seated roots there and family and sense of belonging. Whereas if you have spent, spent all your life growing up in Hong Kong, like there just isn't that a sense of attachment at all. Yeah. That's uh, 
I wonder if, yeah, I think this might be a good time to talk about Hong Kong identity and the sense, like, who who gets to be called a Hong Konger in Hong Kong? Because, I mean, that is something you, you talk about. I don't know. I, I feel like it's such a nuanced identity that I can't quite grasp. Like, is it just that only people who speak Cantonese and, you know, are ethnically Han Chinese or, you know, love democracy are those the only people that are considered Hong Kongers or, or, or is it, I don't know, it seems so complex to me because as you said, it is, it is, Hong Kong is a city of immigrants, right? Not just from mainland China, but also from all over the world. So yeah, yeah could, could you talk a little bit more about how you've seen Hong Kong identity manifested in different ways? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad it confuses you because it confuses everyone. Like I like it. It's a very confusing question because nothing like Hong Kong has ever existed before, right? Like there is no historical precedent for one country, two systems. Like it was a pretty imaginative act to be mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, like every single colony was either was given back. But there was yeah. never a colony that was like, okay, we're going to, like, give it back, but then, like, partially under this, like, weird half thing, right? And so, like, everyone in Hong Kong is this, has this strange, like, hybrid dynamic where they're straddling all kinds of different worlds. And so, I like, a, a lot of the goal of this piece was basically to answer this question. Like, what is it? mean to be a Hong Konger because you have all over these protests like we're gonna take back Hong Konger for true Hong Kongers right like I'm a true Hong Konger like we're fighting for true Hong Kongers and you know when I was reading these I was like okay like what does that even mean right and like as an international school student I'm like doubly kind of alien because I'm like part of this even more bizarre hybrid type situation where I like went to school in the states right and my parents are mainlanders and so like there's like an even more like deeper sense of unbelonging. And I always thought that like, oh, like, you know, I, I don't feel like I totally belong because I went to international school and also because like my parents are mainlanders. And then I like dug a little deeper and realized that everyone had some feeling of like unbelonging. And in some ways, the protests created a lot of solidarity for people. And uh, on one hand, made people feel alienated in some ways, but in some ways, like, tied people together right like brought people together and suddenly like created a common cause for people now the question is like what is that common cause right like what is that shared identity that people are fighting for and you know that is where it started to get vague right because that was like okay like if you are uh you know a supporter of democracy and freedom that's what i got a lot like what is hong kong or someone who supports democracy and freedom like what does it mean like right what type of democracy what kind of freedom if somebody says they don't want democracy and they've been born and raised in hong kong all their life are they hong kong or right i uh, one part that it just totally didn't wasn't even part of the piece at all but it was so fascinating was on the the protests that i covered i talked to a long time to this um young man who is ethnically South Asian, ethnically Indian. His family is three generations Indian and his grandfather like moved to Hong Kong in the sixties. His Cantonese is better than mine. Mm-hmm. He works as a comedian. And he was like, Yeah, like I always asked you know, like, I I'd never feel like I totally belong, even though I or he he feels like a true Hong Kong era, but people always give him a double luck, right? Because like Hong Kong is still not quite the experiment of diversity and the level of diversity that the united states is the united states is and at least aspires to be and so we never really think of you know south asian people as hong kongers um Mm. another example is like that i found super interesting was i forget her name but a really well-respected journalist who works for uh, rthk i believe one of the local news outlets and Mm -hmm. uh she is uh, ethnically pakistani but is, you know, does all her reporting, all her writing in Cantonese. And wow. Carrie Lam, at a press conference, Carrie Lam said something kind of uh, just like it wasn't really a response to a question. And she stood up and said, answer a question. She like very eloquently kind of like called Carrie Lam out, like in front of hundreds of people and was like, yo, woman, answer a question, you know. Mm, yeah. And all these comments just like 
started coming into social media and they're like, wow, like she's so amazing. She's like more real than a real Hong Konger. Mm. And like that is a kind of loaded statement, you know, like I mean that that statement is double-edged sword because on one hand it's praise, right? They're like, she's amazing. But on the other, they're saying she's more real than a real Hong Konger. And that implication is she's not a real Hong Konger, right? Mm. But that's founded on the premise that she, you know, does not look Asian, um, yeah. or at least East Asian. And so, you know, the, the protests definitely opened up these conversations around belonging and identity that previously have not been explored, which is a good thing. I mean, it's easy to paint this in like a very, paint like a very black and white picture of the, the, the conflict or division, right? Like, uh, you know, people who support mainland China, people who support, uh, I guess, Hong Kong as a unique self-governing independent, you know, Hong Kong society the way it is. But what about, I, I've heard some stories of actual young people, you know, there are a lot of students and uh, just, I guess, people from mainland China uh, working in Hong Kong and who have moved to Hong Kong maybe temporarily, but who actually support the protesters. And I feel like their voices are almost uh, never heard. Mm-hmm. How are those people treated in, or, or, you know, have you heard any um, thoughts or opinions about, I guess, this minority maybe of, of people from the mainland who are supportive of the protests? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's a intensely tricky place to be in, right? You're kind of like damned both ways. And so my basic understanding is a majority of recent mainland immigrants or students or you know people who came to Hong Kong to work kind of just like keep their heads in the sand regardless of whether they support it or anti or neutral towards the protests and at this point neutral kind of just means blue because it means you're okay with the way things are the mo is just stick your head in the sand and don't get involved and i totally understand that because it's like if you voice your opposition to the protests you are perceived as you know this mainlander who is sabotaging the movement and encroaching on the city and if you are supportive of the protests you're seen as like a traitor to the motherland and potentially there are safety implications too and so you're kind of damned both ways as a mainlander in hong kong um and so I've, i've definitely paid a lot of attention to you know people who are navigating that space and have talked to a lot of not a lot, but like a handful of mainlanders who identify as yellow. Um, mm-hmm. And always, you know, I'm always quite, not in awe, but I'm like quite, I have a lot of admiration for them because it's a very difficult place to be. Uh, you know, like one person that I have interviewed and but she didn't make in the, or didn't talk to in peace, like is a, I met her on actually with Lori when I was um, walking of doing the Halloween parade, they met together. They they were like very good friends, and they met at Demacy Stowe at a Demacy Stowe volunteering mm-hmm. activity. And she, you know, like she moved from Hangzhou maybe like five years ago, and she was seven months pregnant. You know, she was like walking for two hours, heavily pregnant with her child, and has been essentially to every weekend protest. And uh-huh. you know, like and and there are definitely not a lot of stories about these types of people, um, mid contingent of yellow mainlanders are sort of the cause. And I think both because they don't want that type of attention. You know, it's it's not it's not great for safety. Yeah. And, you know, like it's so it's such a like intense moment to be in Hong Kong, at least at that time and now, but definitely then that people are suspicious. It's like, what are you doing here? I think there there mm. there are several barriers to entry yeah I, I imagine that was aggravated or exacerbated by uh the whole coronavirus situation uh, you know with, with i guess people from mainland china wanting to come in for i don't know medical treatment medical supplies and i i, I can only imagine there was that only increased this, this backlash or this uh this sentiment that doesn't leave a very rosy picture of of hong kong society and i mean i i, I my heart really goes out to you know people in hong kong especially people who feel like their their voice isn't being heard so they have to turn to you know even violent means because that's the only way they will be recognized or heard 
or you know people who feel like they don't have a shot at moving up you know like their parents did so i feel like my automatic response would be to right kind of like this fight or flight response would be to try to try to leave if i see no hope in the situation so uh, what have you seen the kind of response been to this i guess uncertainty and unrest right is has it been to lay low and try to stick it out or or try to I don't know, whenever possible to move to a different country to, to try to escape the situation? Or, or is there any incentive to, to stay if, they, if, if uh, even if you can leave? I mean, definitely there is in the 97, there is this huge impulse for flight, right? Like, I think that's why a lot of Hong Kong people immigrated to Canada and Vancouver is essentially like a little Hong Kong. But then like most people don't have that option, right? That's just not in the cards, and then add on the fact that now the question is where to, right? It's like, like one thing that I, like what I find about the, uh, the situation in Hong Kong, it is, yes, certainly it is. It feels intractable and uncertain, but I'm kind of looking around the world right now and I just see the same themes just echoing everywhere, right? Yeah. This idea that the status quo has to change that the authorities are to blame and that the people have to stand up right it's like 2019 was the year of protests like yeah people in catalan were copying what was going on in hong kong in chile in cairo right. right like in france with the gilet jaunes like i was talking to a french tourist who was like oh my gosh we need to like the gilet jaunes you really need to learn from hong kong protesters right and it's like <laughs> That's also like a class space. Yeah, I literally, this is a crazy side shoot from like the piece, but like I went on a protest tour in January, <laughs> which was like by this dude who is like giving international travelers a tour. And these guys were all like, oh, this is like just like home. You know, like it, in some ways it was this exotic thing, but in some ways they're like, oh yeah, like we're part of something bigger. Like this is a global upheaval even in the the energy of the young people, right? Like, it, I mean, just like one thing, I don't know if this is too big of a leap to make, but like I was struck by the energy of young people who are rallying for Bernie, you know? And in a way that like, it seems like a lot of people couldn't fathom a system other than the system we have now. And so when Bernie goes and says something like, okay, like let's have universal like healthcare, everyone goes apeshit because it's just like so mm. different. There's a, there's a similar dynamic there, I think, just in terms of, like, young people realizing that this, the status quo is not sustainable anymore. But what is, what you mean in terms of, like, leaving? It's, like, now it really is just on a purely logistical level. It's kind of, like, go where, right? But yeah. also the echoes of, like, the divisions, too. Just that it reminds me so much of what's going on in the UK and Brexit and kind of not a parallel to be drawn, but definitely the the siloed nature of like yellow blue media divides remind me so much of red blue divisions yeah. where you kind of just like read what you want to read and listen to what when you want to listen. And so Hong Kong feels unique to me because it's kind of it got there first. You know, like this upheaval is getting has exploded first because it just happens to be the not in this like big geopolitical tangle. Yeah. But I feel like the, the concerns are pretty prevalent and universal. Absolutely. I think, well, one, I find it kind of ironic when I see American flags or British flags or you know, even South Korean and Israeli flags being flown at you know, protests in Hong Kong. Uh, because, I mean, I'm sure the grass is greener on the other side, but or looks greener, but actually it's not... Uh, <laughs> it's not so rosy, um, but I, I I do think I mean of course the situation is is unique as as you've described, but I do feel like there's there are takeaways that we can glean from this that are applicable to you know our our local communities wherever they might be. So yeah, do you have any final observations? Anything you'd like to leave um, or conclude for the the conversation or? Anything you um, suggest for people who are listening to, you know, learn more about the situation accurately or, or to, to help the cause? Yeah, I just say pretty broadly to pay attention to what's going on in the state of the world. You know, I think it like just to end on that note of 
the January 1st protest tours. It was just like very, to leave with an image, very jarring on January 1st, New Year's Day, to go on this protest with a group of tourists and to have everyone, you know, like thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on the street standing together. Everyone is wearing a mask and all these flags are being raised. And it just felt like this giant WHO, you know, like conference. And then to literally, like literally two weeks later, be walking around the streets and have everyone wearing masks for a totally different reason. Just like gave me a sense of how quickly things move and how they will move to wherever you are, (laughs) like before you even know it, you know, like, and then I went to New York and nobody like really paid attention to what was going on. Like no one was wearing a mask. Whatever is going on, the other people is going on that side of the world, the virus that's going on on that side of the world, it's just so far. You know, it's like, it doesn't concern us. It's like the story of the other, of the like mysterious East, right? We can be tourists and snap some pics of this cool legging protest, but it's like not really relevant to us. And I think what the last year and this year has revealed is like all of this is inextricably related now someone like daryl murray of the nba can speak out in support of hong kong protests mm-hmm. and everyone goes eat like just go crazy because they're like yo daryl you can't say that and daryl's like ah oh. like you know so it's just like we're all so entwined it's important to pay attention i think now these things will affect you like within a matter of 14 days not to be ominous maybe more on a hopeful note it's like well what you do also can just like to stay informed can be a huge difference Hmm. well we will definitely be on the lookout for more pieces from you from the future i'll keep you posted it might be it might be a while till another one comes listening and if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation please follow us on instagram at divided families podcast if you enjoyed this episode please rate us on apple podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform thanks as always to final hour for the music and see you next time